everyone. Welcome to A Gut Feely. My name is Jake and I'm joined here today with Dave. As health coaches and educators, we've helped thousands of clients optimize their life by healing their gut. Our aim with this podcast is to provide you with some of those tools. Now, before we get into it, don't forget to check out the show notes for links to our social media profiles. And if you like what we've got to say, go with your gut and give this podcast a follow. Now, let's get into today's show. <laughs> so I always try to be as flexible as possible when it comes to diet, when it comes to foods that I um, you know, suggest my clients to consume and foods that it comes to limit. And there's one food that I would say a lot of the time actually should be a non-negotiable. And even in my own diet, this is a food that I would class as a non-negotiable for me. Um, yet it comes to a shock to a lot of people to hear that actually there's particular forms of this food that I do allow myself to eat. And it becomes a fairly complicated um, kind of conversation. So we're going to do our best to distill that conversation down and try to demystify it a little bit. And that food, of course, we're talking about is gluten. And it's not just all forms of gluten, it's particular types of gluten. So a lot of people may not even know that there's actually different types of gluten and that it's not all gluten you know, created equally. So how about we start with that bit, Dave? What, what are we talking about when we talk about gluten? Yeah, so like... like it- it's a good intro because I, I don't want to like demonize gluten here. Cause even when I first started learning about this stuff, like, you know, I just thought like gluten was the devil. So I want to, mm. I want to make that clear that, you know, it's a protein molecule. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's a normal protein molecule that you find within wheat. Okay. The problem in terms of how we educate people around it is we sort of like dumb it down a lot. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So people can digest it. Pardon the pun. Okay. <laughs> so they can digest a little bit more. Okay. But, Really, when it comes to gluten, okay, we, we need to get a little bit more exact here. That would be my point. So within gluten, you've got protein molecules, you've got gluten, and you've got gliden. Now, they are required. And what do they actually help with? If you actually look in the, the example of just like bread, okay, well, actually, these molecules actually help with the raising of the bread. You know, and let's say what we eat in like more Western countries, okay, so like what we eat in, you know, in countries like America, UK, Australia, we actually eat more what we would call like common wheat. Now, big issues around like being genetically modified. Okay, and there, there, there is higher gliding concentrations here. And that's obviously where it does pose some problems. Now, if we look at maybe some more of these ancient grains, now, from my perspective, more things like rye, triticum durum wheat, which is like semolina. And this would be more like the ancient durum wheat. Now, probably what they ate initially in countries like India, now, also through like Sardinia, Hungary, Austria, a lot, of, a lot of the places through Europe. So the gliding concentration was a lot lower here, okay? And it's a lot lower in things like rye and even things like, uh, you know, proper fermented uh, sourdough and mm-hmm. so forth. So mm. the gliding concentration is lower. And so therefore, some of the responses that actually cause within the gut lining are, are less severe or less, or less problematic, okay? Mm. And we might break that down like a little bit more so people can understand it, okay? Mm. And when it comes to gliden, it is, it is quite complex. So you've even got like alpha, beta, omega gliden. And when we, the way to look at it, there's so many different responses that we can have to like the wheat fraction with like, you know, the proteins within, within wheat. And that's what people really need to understand. It's, it's a lot more complex, yeah, okay? So we actually, within um, tissue, you got like tissue transglutaminase, okay? Now, the way to look at it, anything with an ASE on the end, I know it sounds really complex, okay? But anything with an ASE on the end, essentially an enzyme. 
So it helps to like so speed something that up ends in A's. So transglutaminase yeah. enzyme. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and it helps to like speed up a chemical reaction. So tissue transglutaminase. The way to look at this is it actually helps with our ability to break down the weak compound. Okay, and when we're so when we consume it, we're obviously producing more of this to actually help with our ability to break down the weak compound. Okay, and as we're doing that, we actually produce during the breakdown. You actually produce more proteins. Now. In this process, this is where some of the issues can lie, okay? So if I give some examples here in terms of how many different types of reactions that you can have, because a lot of the time when people are testing for, let, let's say, celiac disease and gluten intolerance and gluten sensitivity, they'll test like transglutaminase IgA, and a lot of the time they'll test that within like stool testing, okay? So I'm not taking away from that. That can be, you know, one form of testing you can do to understand whether you do have celiac disease or, or gluten gluten sensitivity or gluten intolerance. But some people, um, you can have like responses where there's things like glutamorphin. Again, once again, I know they sound technical, but glutamorphin, that's to do with like opioid peptides. Okay, now why is this relevant? Opioid peptides, okay, what they can essentially do is they can cross the blood-brain barrier. And when they cross the blood-brain barrier, they obviously could cause potential issues. I'm not saying this 100%, but they potentially could cause issues like even potentially things like autism. And in terms of like reactions as well, you can have like almost like those typical digestive reactions. So that could be like, you know, like bloating, diarrhea, these types of responses, okay? But look, I'm only talking about one. There's, out, there's other responses here. So you've actually got gliden deamidated, yeah, okay? Now, when this is taking place, okay, a lot of time people get like things like, like abdominal pain, abdominal cramping. And so, so because a lot of the time, like people think, well, you know, when I consume gluten or when I'm consuming mm. gliden, yeah, okay, I must get digestive symptoms, okay? Yeah. And in that instance, yes, yes, there's di digestive symptoms associated here. But there's other responses as well. So if you look at gliden transglutaminase complex, well, it's not really necessarily showing up with a lot of digestive symptoms, okay? What's actually happening is you're getting a lot of inflammatory responses. So that could show up with like, you know, joint inflammation, okay? And that could be even things like RSI, okay? You know, maybe more inflammation, you know, in the fingers, maybe more inflammation, even like in the cervical spine, through the through the spine in general, okay? just having more inflammatory responses. Now, also, you're probably going to be a little bit more prone to things like arthritis, osteoarthritis, you know, even rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, all these types of inflammatory conditions, mm -hmm. so autoimmune conditions. So it's basically showing up with inflammation. And then also with this, we've got transglutaminase 3, okay? Now, this can affect the skin. So you get skin reactions. As far as I understand, it could even affect the brain as well. So you might actually get things like migraines and headaches. Okay. So once again, okay, people are consuming gluten, they're consuming mm. gliden, and they're just going, well, you know, I've got a headache, I've got a migraine. Okay. But it's got nothing to do with what I've just consumed. Yeah. Yeah. So these sense? transglutaminase pathways you're talking about, so someone may experience like dominance of, of a particular pathway, they could experience potentially all of them. So someone might be experiencing the digestive symptoms it might, and the yes, neurological it might be a symptoms. Of them. Yeah. But they may, you're probably going to go into the other path, pathways a little bit more, but you know, what you said there is, is most of these actually aren't digestive. So someone could be experiencing several of these, none of which are digestive. And like you said, they might not associate, well, it's gluten, which is causing this issue because my issues are neurological or my issues are skin-based or my issues are, you know, whatever, as opposed to actually digestive. Exactly. And even like, if you look at, you know, what I was talking about, like transglutaminase three, so yes, you know, migraines and headaches and so forth, but 
like with like, you know, pregnant women. Okay. And so mm-hmm. they're consuming gliadin, they're consuming gluten when they're pregnant. Okay. So it can actually affect the placenta. So like, I don't, you know, I don't want to create like massive, like alarm bells here. Okay. Mm. But you know, it might not be affecting them negatively in terms of the symptoms that they're experiencing, but if it's affecting the placenta, it's obviously affecting the lifeline to the fetus. Yeah. Okay. So in that instance, there's potential that the the baby might actually be born with, you know, with like things like food sensitivities and food intolerances and maybe, you know, skin related issues and respiratory problems like asthma and all these types of things. Okay. We, we need to understand that a lot of these problems can start from the womb. Yeah, mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, it's not like it's just a case of like, you know, just bad luck. I mean, if we're just saying that everything is just like bad luck, okay, we might as well just like throw in the towel now. Yeah. Okay. Just give up. Yeah. Okay. That's the, that's the way I look at it because there's always a reason to why some type of response is actually taking place. Yeah. Okay. I um, mean, that's just how I feel about it. I'm sure you're the same, Jake. Okay. There's always, there's always a reason. Um, you just got to look a little bit harder to find out what that reason is. So then you've got like transglutamase 6. Okay. Now transglutamase 6, okay. That can actually affect a little bit more like the central nervous system. Okay. So these people might just be a little bit more agitated on edge. So once again, you're feeling like that. Okay. And you just, because everyone just thinks that association is just digestive and that's it. Mm. They've got these, you know, uh, central nervous system issues, agitation, migraines, headaches, and they're, they're not understanding that they're actually having some of these other responses. I mean, at the end of the day, like you look at like transglutamase 2, well, that's what they would use to probably depict like celiac. Mm-hmm. Okay? And then what we need to understand, like with something like celiac disease, I mean, really, when you've got celiac, I mean, you, you have an autoimmune disease. So a lot of the time when people are doing the testing for this, they go, well, I've done the testing. I don't have celiac disease. But you can have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So, and and if we put it in perspective, okay, what I think what they say is like in America, that something like celiac only accounts for maybe something like 0.7 to 1% of the actual responses. It's negligent, yeah, okay? So could there be evidence to show that actually more non-celiac gluten sensitivity responses and, you know, so it's not like a, a, a case because the, the fact of the matter is if you've got celiac, you've got villi atrophy, you've got cryptoplasty, you've got full deterioration of the villi and you just keep on eating gluten, okay? You just keep on consuming gliden. Of course, you're going to create a lot of inflammation within the gastrointestinal tract. Now that could leave you a lot more prone to serious health ailments like bowel cancer. So mm. the issue there is like if you have like undetect, undetected celiac and you just keep on consuming it, we're talking about like you could get like a serious disease. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think they say for every, once again, this is pretty, this is a bit of an old stat that I'm bringing out here, but I think it's a goodie. But I think they say for every one person that gets detected with celiac, that there's 6.4 people that get misdiagnosed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's the same stat today because that was a little while ago. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't imagine that it's improved that much over, over the period of time when I last looked yeah. at that statistic. So that's an interesting statistic. So a lot of people, once again, because they're not necessarily checking all the different responses. Yeah. Okay. So they might be just checking the transglutaminase IgA or checking the transglutaminase 2. Yeah. Okay. And then they just go, well, I don't, I don't have celiac disease, but they could be having all these other responses. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? So in that instance, so in someone who, who, say celiac is not the issue for them 
And maybe they don't even know they're getting these digestive symptoms and they're kind of questioning, how do I know if gluten is causing me problems or not? What would you, how would you answer that? Would you tell them to get testing? Would you go off other symptoms? Like how would someone know if that's them or not? Well, that's, well, that's the thing. Like, I mean, once again, you can check like, you know, transgluminase IgA, you can check the transgluminase too, if you want to check for celiac disease and so forth. So you can check some of these, you know, what I'm talking about, transgluminase three and transgluminase six. Mm. Okay. So you can go into a little bit more of these exact tests, but bear in mind, you're going to have to check like all these types of responses yeah. to really get clarity. Okay. Well, I'm not, I don't actually respond poorly to that. Now, one thing to bear in mind also with wheat because I just want to throw this in, in there, is that a lot of the time why people can be responding poorly to wheat, maybe a conversation for another time, is actually because it's classified as a fruit oligosaccharide. Yeah, mm. Okay. So being a fruit oligosaccharide, you know, prebiotic, but that's definitely going to be problematic for negative gram bacteria. And that's going to be a problem around LPS. So I just want to make it clear that, you know, there's another issue there. Okay. So yeah. you can do all these testing. You're not really having these negative responses. But then you're actually consuming wheat and you are having some negative responses because you've got the negative gram bacteria overgrowth and you've got the excess amounts of LPS. Yeah. So essentially, because it's a high FODMAP food, then it just could be causing that, those digestive symptoms, the gas. The yeah. Well, because that, well, that could, that would, so not just the negative gram bacteria, but that would cause issues around SIBO, like small intestinal yeah. bacteria overgrowth as well. So we need to take into consideration that there's some other potential issues here and they don't just relate to the, you know, what I'm talking about here, like these different responses and the yeah. transglutamase threes and the sixes and all this type of so stuff. So if someone yeah, were okay. to do these transglutamase tests and that didn't flag any issues, would you say, okay, go for gold, gluten is not a problem for you, no issues? It's a great question. Okay, I'd like, you know, to finish, you know, what you've, you first asked me, what I would also say is that sometimes a good test can be just to eliminate gluten. <laughs> People don't want to hear I mean, that though, Dave. I mean, I mean, who would have thought? Okay. And I think like, it seems so like, seems a little bit prehistoric. Like even, you know, we would say that seems a little bit prehistoric, but it's actually quite a good test. Yeah. Okay. You know, take out gluten for an extended period of time. Like I can't remember what they say that the time frame, but I mean, I can base it on some sort of research papers that I have seen, but they, you know, people who are suffering like some neurological disorders, because what I want to make clear is that there's also, you know, a big link here with gluten and, and gliden molecule and so forth with neurological problems as well, yeah. because, because anything that's going to affect the gut is also going to have a negative consequence to the brain as well. Okay. And I think they actually did testing with people with ADHD and they actually, I think it was six months. They went on like a gluten-free outline mm -hmm. account and there was, you know, vast improvements in the symptoms. Now I'm not saying that it completely cured the ADHD. Mm -hmm. Okay. But it definitely improved the symptoms. And so, what we need to understand is that when also when people are consuming like gliden and they do have like, you know, things like hyperpermeability, and I'm sure we're going to get into this in a minute. So they've got like, you know, damage to the gut lining, the traditional form of like leaky gut. Now the gliden molecule can pass through the intracellular tight junctions a lot more rapidly. It gets in the hepatic portal system, bloodstream liver, and this is going to raise like antibodies. So it actually raises like AGAs. So anti-gliden antibodies, okay? Now with this, this actually is reflected in things like an increase in immunoglobulins. So IgG and IgA. Well, this is interesting because if there's high amounts of, and I'm not saying these things are bad, okay? Because we're talking about antigen and antibody response or mm. in layman's terms, guys, like just immune response. 
So if you get a raise in the IgG and the IgA, that has been linked to, like I'm talking excessive amounts here, but that has actually been linked to particular neurological problems like schizophrenia. Now, even, you know, massive raises in like, uh, I'm pretty sure like IgG, even things like bipolar. So there's, there's definitely some, you know, huge links here to neurodegenerative diseases. Um, you know, I think gluten, there, there might be some links here. And I'm not saying this is 100% confirmation. I'm just saying that there has been some links to, uh, you know, uh, particular neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease as well. And that probably brings it, me into what you were probably getting at is that the, the issue here is that the gliadin molecule, okay, whether you're celiac, non-celiac, definitely causes a, a type of response within the gastrointestinal lining. Now, if we partner this up, because most of the time, most things are about relationships and partnerships. Now, in common wheat, okay, so we can, we can sit here and just talk about the gliadin molecule the mm. whole time, but in common wheat, because we're, we're dealing with like herbicides and pesticides as well, well, you generally have glyphosate. Now, for people who don't know what glyphosate is, okay, it's Roundup. So really important to understand that even people who've handled glyphosate out there, and I think they would know this, one of the initial responses that you will have to something like glyphosate if you're spraying with it, like if you're not wearing the face mask, and maybe that could be debatable how much that actually does help. But if you're handling the glyphosate and you actually do get some of that glyphosate, and actually, because it's once again, it's water soluble. So nothing's a barrier to it. So even though we say the epithelium and the, the mucosal cells are the most protective physical barrier in the human body, well, because glyphosate is water soluble, it's just like they're, they're not really a barrier. Mm. Okay. So they're going through that protective barrier. That's why a lot of people have been exposed to glyphosate. And I know this from even like, you know, friends who, you know, you know, even like their father-in-law and people they know have handled the glyphosate and they've experienced terrible respiratory distress. Mm. Okay. And even actually suffered very severe respiratory illnesses as well. So, so you know that's creating like hyperpermeability within the lungs. So if you look at it, so you, if you're consuming small concentrations of gliadin, now gliadin, okay, if we, once again, we talk about this all the time, but you've obviously got the epithelium, you've got the mucosal cells and healthy epithelium bunch up nice and tight. Now, most of the activity should be going transcellular, so actually through the cell. But we do have some activity going paracellular or intracellular, so through the intracellular tight junctions. Now, these intracellular tight junctions are made up of all these tight junction proteins, like 50 different tight junction proteins. But there's some major ones here that sit at the top of the tight junctions. This is the top. So you've got things like occludin, claudine, and you've got zolin. Okay, so zolin is the gatekeeper. Now, what I mean by this, it's going to dictate the loosening or the widening of these intracellular tight junctions and the tightening. And so they're going to dictate what proteins and enzymes and fluids are going to go through those intracellular tight junctions. And they're all going to, also going to stop microbes from colonizing down those intracellular tight junctions. So they're controlling the width. Okay. Now, gliadin, whether you're celiac, celiac or non-celiac, I'm not saying this is a bad reaction. I'm just mm. saying this is the reaction. Okay. And so essentially what gliadin does, it stimulates zolin. And it tells Zolin to open the tight junctions wider. So I'm talking about the, the, the top section here because you've got tight junctions, you've got adherent tight junctions, you've got desmosomies, and you've got gap junctions. So the tight junctions open wider. So that's not the end of the world because if you look at you know, calcium, now calcium is really important for the gut. It's a major mineral, but it's not as water-soluble as other minerals. Okay, 
So what should happen is the calcium goes up the intracellular type junctions and it's, it's like the zipper. So it goes up the intracellular type junctions and it tells Zonlin to pull the tight junctions tight again. And this is normal activity. So the normal activity is that this will open, then it will tighten up. Okay, this will open and it will tighten up. So if we're eating, you know, like triticum durum wheat, semolina, like proper fermented, you know, sourdough, all these things that I, you know, I mentioned right at the start, okay, because the gliding concentration is low, this activity is happening, but maybe not happening as frequently and as often. And once again, if you've got good structure in the gut lining, the way to look at it, if you've got damage within the gut lining, then you're going to have problems. The number one macronutrient you struggle to break down first is fats because you struggle with things like bile, bile salts, mm. mycelizing factors. So you, you tend to get like, you know, fat maldigestion, fat malabsorption. So you, you have a lot of fat deposits. And the problem here is the calcium gets stuck in the fat deposits. And because it gets stuck in the fat deposits, it means you don't have as much calcium going up the intracellular tight junctions, basically telling Zolan to pull it tight. So what's going to happen here stays open. So, now, so what you're saying now then is someone could have celiac disease. That's one possibility. Even if that's not going on, there's all these transglutaminase pathways, which could be affecting people digestively, neurologically, could be affecting the placenta in pregnant women. There's all these pathways it could be impacting. Even if that's not happening, it's like we're kind of working backwards. Like now lowest you know, common denominator here is now even in the absence of all of those immune reactions, if you're consuming high amounts of, of gliadin, it's, it's increasing intestinal permeability. And that's, like you said, not necessarily always going to be hugely problematic, but it's occurring and we need to be aware that that's occurring and it can be problematic. Yeah. 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 hundred percent. Because like even the, the, you know, there was a, a paper or research paper that was done in 2005. I always quote it. This now, is the Fasano uh, one. Uh, so that was by Estrago. Okay. okay. And he, so, so he actually, once again, he wasn't trying to demonize wheat here, okay? He was just trying to understand what type of reaction was act would actually take place within the gastrointestinal lining. Mm. And he basically said that whether you're celiac, non-celiac, that the gliden stimulates zonin and it opens the tight junctions wider. Mm. Now, once again, if you've got a good functioning digestive system and the calcium is going up the intracellular tight junctions, that doesn't pose a problem. This is normal activity. But if you've had other things that have actually exacerbated damage within the gastrointestinal lining, well, it's going to stoke the fire. And more to the point, when we've actually got the combination of gliden and glyphosate together, well, my analogy is this is like terrible twins. Now, they're going to cause massive havoc because it's the combination that becomes a problem, okay? Because gliden creates that reaction that I was talking about. So it opens up the tight junctions. It stimulates zone. Mm -hmm. Now, once again, because glyphosate, nothing is a barrier to it. It's water soluble, so it's getting through there. Now, it really damages the gap junctions. Now, if it damages the gap junctions, okay, so the gliden is creating that reaction, the glyphosate is creating that reaction, and now essentially we have hyperpermeability. Mm. Now, what we also need to understand is that the role of the gap junctions is cross-talking. Now, a lot of people are going to go, what the hell is cross-talking? We're talking about communication of one epithelium to the other. Okay, now also what's involved in cross-talking is also the epithelium communicating with the microbiota or the microbiome. So if we compromise this cross-talking ability, cross-talking actually helps with priming of the immune system. So what you're essentially doing now is you're compromising your immune system. So 
yes, you, you, so you have this compromisation. You also have excess amounts of hyperpermeability. Now, what are you ramping up? You're ramping up antigen antibody response. Yeah, okay. Certain molecules that would normally get filled at a particular rate have an easier escape route through the intracellular tight junctions. They get into the hepatic pore cell system, bloodstream, liver, and they're going to raise more, you know, antigen and antibody response. You're going to get more cell activation, so an increase in white blood cells. You're going to get more mediator response. So this means like pro-inflammatory proteins and cytok so cytokines and interleukins, prostaglandins. Yeah, okay, I'm not saying this is all bad. I'm just saying it's normal, but you're having excessive amounts of this. And you're also increasing histamine. And if you increase histamine, okay, well, histamine helps the release of serotonin. Well, serotonin is anti-inflammatory. It helps the gut motility. So I'm not saying this is all bad, but this is happening frequently. And if you're producing more histamine, then the histamine plays on the histamine receptors like H1, H2, H3, H4. These are, these are proteins. And it plays on the histamine receptors and you start to get more histamine reactions. So it plays on H1 receptors. Yes, this helps with sleep-wake cycle, so it's not all bad, but you're going to get things like food sensitivities, food intolerances, you know, skin reactions, psoriasis, eczema, respiratory distress, you got asthma. So more of these types of re reactions are going to take place. So, so glyphosate, so that's the number one used pesticide in the developed world as far as I know. So... And it's used in more than just wheat. It's it's used on soy and corn and oats and I think you do grains. find in some like fruits and vegetables. Like mm. I look, I could I couldn't give like someone a full list of every single thing that you, you do find it on. I do know that you know wheat, oats, yeah, okay, uh, two of the main ones, soy. But I think you can you know it has been used for some other you know fruits and vegetables as well. Mm. Okay, so. It's definitely a lot more prevalent, okay? And one thing I want to also say is that, well, a lot of people say, well, how I'm going to minimize this, you know, situation is I'll just go gluten-free, okay? Now, from mm. my understanding, gluten-free doesn't necessarily mean it's glyphosate-free. No, buckwheat uses it. Yeah. So, so which is, which I guess a question which can't be answered is what's causing the issues, right? Is it the gliadin or is it the glyphosate or is it the combination of both? And that's one reason why even if someone comes to me and says, you know what, I, I've done this testing, I've done genetic testing, I've done transglutaminase testing, I don't have an issue here with, with gluten. Like you said, it's still worth doing that test. It's still worth doing the, the you know, avoidance for, I normally say about 90 days. There's some research I've seen that shows there's about a 90-day washout period. And you don't know how you're going to respond unless you've actually tried eliminating it. Now you have mentioned that it's this combination. So it's, it's the, the worst combo we've got here is the glyphosate and high concentrations of gliadin. And so there's things we can do to actually minimize that. So for example, you could be having an organic, you know, I have organic Khorasan, which is again, an ancient wheat, which has, it still has gluten, but it's got much lower concentrations of, of gliadin. So, or, you know, you could have, if you don't have, you know, significant issues with gluten, you could be having like an organic sourdough, like you said. And so these are things where you're still actually consuming gluten. So we're not saying that every single person in the world needs to cut out gluten, but realistically, we probably are saying that every single person should probably cut out just the normal commercial wheat you're getting from the supermarket because that's high concentrations of, of gliadin, high amounts of glyphosate. There's not, I can't think of anyone who that is a good food for them to be eating. 
Yeah, it's like like once again, I, I don't want to make it sound like the gliding molecule is the devil because I, I truly don't believe that. Yeah, okay. I do think the combination of gliding and glyphosate together is, is a terrible combination. Yeah, okay. mm. It's going to cause major problems. But once again, if you are consuming a lot of common wheat, you are going to be facing this issue. So exa- like, exactly what like Jake said is like, there's just better choices you can make. You know, like rye bread, okay? Once again, the gliding concentration is, is pretty low there. You know, I do like a good proper fermented sourdough. Now, also, it's really high in lactobacillus as well. Mm. So you're getting a lot of benefits around this. And also, I'd say like I do um, really promote people using like alternative breads as well. Mm. I mean, you can get things like buckwheat bread, okay? Um, you're probably getting a lot more nutrient density from using that anyway. And even you can get even get things like quinoa bread and so forth. So there's alternative breads that you can actually use as well. And the same applies for, you know, pasta. You can get quinoa pasta, mm. buckwheat pasta. So I don't think it's this, and I wouldn't th- think that always what people need to resort to is just going gluten-free, okay? No. Because a lot of time gluten-free just means there's higher amounts of, you know, even things like sugar, and also, it doesn't necessarily mean exactly what I said before. It doesn't necessarily mean it's glyphosate. No, not at all. I mean, it's, it's okay. if you go pick up a loaf in the supermarket, it's going to be soy and corn and, you know, all these things that are going to be dousing glyphosate anyway. Yeah. And, and, and also, you know, I do like the more ancient form of, uh, you know, Durham wheat, which is actually like semolina. So now, once mm. again, that can be a little bit harder to track down. But, you know, I did spend some time in Sardinia. Okay. The actual guy that actually, showed us around and he actually exposed us to good quality uh, semolina and good quality durham wheat okay i remember he actually came to melbourne yeah okay and i took him to a place that i thought would be a little bit better you know when it comes to the quality of the bread and he just like straight away just goes just not good quality so so you know like obviously he could like just taste it immediately how different it was so you know yes these things can be a little bit harder to track down but it's definitely, we're not saying that you have to cut this out, but it's just far better choices that you can be making in this instance. So you touched on permeability and, and how the combination of the two increases permeability. Now, does that mean someone always needs to buy organic? You know, is there other negative effects of glyphosate? Obviously, glyphosate is, I mean, it, it, it's a pesticide, and so it's working off effectively killing bacteria. Is that going to have an issue in in our body where we're more bacteria than we are human is that an issue for us well, well there's always been this this argument about you know i mean because like look if if i put a, a shot glass of glyphosate in front of you and just said like just shot that i mean would you drink it i mean i, I think, think that have you heard this i think this actually happened Oh, really? Someone actually did this? I believe uh, some people listen to this, you go Google it and find out, but I believe that the CEO of Monsanto was in an interview and he was being told, you know, the, or he was claiming, look, this is non-toxic, you know, there's no issues with it, it doesn't harm humans. And I believe that there's an interview where the interviewer actually had said, okay, take a shot. If you think it's non-toxic, take a shot. And he goes, no way. There's no way I would do that. So yeah, well, that, I don't that's, know, that's the reason I bring myth. it up because like, you know, the answer ultimately from anyone would be no way now, but we think it's fine to have these small concentrations on a frequent basis. Now, bear in mind, I'm not, sh- I'm not sure if it's the same within Australia, but bear in mind, like glyphosate has been utilized so much in a country like America. Mm. That's why they've obviously got like the dust bowl because, you know, when glyphosate gets into the, into the soil, I mean, it just absolutely destroys all the nutrients. Mm. 
The, the, the thing is, because it's water soluble, it's also going to get wet into the water table. So it's most yeah. likely into the water table. So one thing that I would actually say, you know, start drinking more mineralized water, you know, get a good quality water filter. You know, that's something you should be investing in straight away because if glyphosate has actually got into the water table and then you're consuming it, you're causing some, you know, bear in mind there's already things in there like chlorine and so forth that are really going to be detrimental to the epithelium and the gut lining as well. Now, if you're combining with that with glyphosate, then this is going to cause some some detrimental harm. So, so I mean, yes. the reality is complete avoidance is not possible anymore. You know, even I believe they've done like atmospheric tests, and there's even been glyphosate just in the atmosphere. And I, I also believe I saw tests done on athletes who consumed an entirely organic diet, and there was still glyphosate in the urine. So, I think even if we do everything perfect, the best we can hope for is to limit exposure, but limiting exposure is still better than doing nothing exactly so yeah look i I would say just clean up the water that you're drinking for sure yeah okay and also you know there are better there are better choices that you can be making and also if you if you don't you know some of the reactions that i'm talking about here okay especially around like the hyperpermeability well there's other things that exacerbate hyperpermeability so even like an overstimulation of your immune system, so your own mm. immune system can create damage in the gut lining, you know, mitigating, you know, emotional stress. So chronic stress and, you know, negative emotions, okay, that will help. Yeah, okay. Now also minimizing bacterial issues because bacterial byproducts. So if I use the example of like acetaldehyde, well, acetaldehyde will actually damage tight junction proteins. So it actually damages the gluten. And that's one of the major filter proteins within the gastrointestinal lining. Now, would you, when you actually damage that, that means you're losing that filtering process that that would actually create even more hyperpermeability. So mitigating like bacterial issues will also help you. The more, I mean, you know, I could keep on going with this, okay? But the more layers that you can peel back mm. when you are consuming, even what we're talking about, even forms of gluten that where there's, lower gliding concentrations okay, and better quality, better quality wheats, yeah, okay, or more of these ancient grains, then you're not going to necessarily have to worry about these responses as much. And also actually help with the intracellular tight junctions, help with the structure of the epithelium. You know, obviously a lot of things that can do that, like quercetin is amazing for the expression and the assembly of tight junction proteins. It helps with the intracellular tight junctions themselves. So there's many things, you know, that we can do, like even vitamin D, vitamin A, things like capric acid, um, luric acid, you know, saturated fats, butyrate, okay, you can get that from ghee, you can get it from butter. So a lot of these things that I'm talking about, tyrosine, because that actually helps with the tight junction protein. So you probably, yes, you could take it as a supplement, but you can also get it from consuming like game meats. Game meats are really high in PEA, phenylalanine, that gets converted to tyrosine. And the tyrosine is needed for something like a gluten. So including a lot of these things, a lot of these compounds can really help with the structure. And the more you can help with the structure, if you go eat better quality, you know, ancient grains and so forth, just because you're getting exposed to a small concentration, you're just not going to have mm. such adverse reactions within the gastrointestinal lining. Mm. So with the glyphosate, do you, I don't know if we have a way to answer this, but do you feel like that's contributing to all i guess the dysbiosis we're seeing the SIBO we're seeing the growth of opportunistic bacteria the low levels of good bacteria do you think that it's 
having an effect there on microbiome balance? Or do you think the, the bigger danger is just the permeability you were talking about? We still need to talk about like the impact it could be having on collagen production and, and the gut lining there as well. But do you think there's sort of multifaceted issues there? I always think that, you know, the type of damage that I'm talking about, the hyperpermeability and the intestinal permeability and the damage to the gut lining is there's many layers to this. Like I don't mm. want to like single out one thing. Do I think glyphosate is a big contributor? It's a big contributor. Anything that's water soluble and it's going to damage the gap junctions and it's affecting the cross-talking is going to have a big impact mm. to the function of the gastrointestinal tract. And it's going to have a big impact to your immune system. You know, and once again, I use the example of people handling, you know, glyphosate yeah. and immediately they're getting like respiratory distress. That shows you how instant it can actually be. So, and then, you know, when you look at some of the research around like some of the impacts around glyphosate, I'm, I want to make it clear before I say some of these things, I'm not saying this is conclusive, mm. but there is evidence to show that glyphosate can even impact things like glutamine uh, synthetase. That's an enzyme for people that don't know. Now that actually helps with their ability to clear excess amounts of ammonia. Now, if we are inhibiting that, well, then now we can have excess amounts of ammonia and that can actually start to create some massive issues within the body, okay? Because also the body's going to have to convert that ammonia into urea so it can excrete it via the kidneys. That can put a lot more overburdening on the kidneys. Now, also, because glutamine synthetase actually helps with things like nitrogen and nitrogen-rich molecules, okay? So it can actually help with things like DNA, and even things like amino acids. Mm. So what's the impact here as well? Now, once again, I'm not saying this is conclusive because there's not conclusive research to say that that's the fact, but also understand there's not conclusive research to, show, to, to actually show that it isn't, mm. okay? And there's even some, you know, I remember reading something a long time ago and then they basically said that it wasn't conclusive and it wasn't, it wasn't true. But I found it interesting and I, I don't mind talking about things that I find interesting, but they basically said that glyphosate would actually replace glycine in the amino acid chain. Now, once again, like glycine is the second most abundant amino acid in the body. Okay. Now they say it's a non-essential amino acid, but uh, trust me, it's essential. It's conditionally essential. Your body needs it. Now, how many things do we need glycine for? Okay. Well, you need glycine for creatine. Well, you need glycine for glutathione. That's the master antioxidant. Now, also, a lack of glycine has been linked to protein misfolding issues. Now, for people who don't know what, pro what examples of protein misfolding issues, because what happens is proteins, they fold and they form another chemical uh, structure, but they can misfold. And when they misfold, normally what would happen is you have like, they call them like chemical chaperones, and they actually help the protein reform its original chemical structure. But when you get protein misfolding issues, an example of that would be like neurodegenerative diseases like multiple sclerosis. Now, once again, I'm not saying that this is conclusive, but I know that you read some research. Yeah, that. I mean, it is, it's one of those issues where this is highly politicized and there's a lot of money in this whole industry. And so how much that affects the science that's available is, is hard to say. But I think what's interesting, you know, about what you said there about the possibility of the misfolding and the possibility of, um, you know, the, the displacing, like glyphosate displacing glycine is mechanistically, we can explain how that could happen, right? So for example, like glyphosate, the way it's working, the, the sugar mite pathway, like this bacterial pathway, it's effectively impacting or, or, you know, it's switching off basically. There's certain bacteria that have developed 
um, like resistance to that, the impact in that pathway by actually evolving to replace a glycine molecule with alanine. And so they've now become resistant. And so the fact that we can see things definitively of um, whether that's plants or bacteria that are actually changing this amino acid or this peptide profile and replacing glycine with a different amino acid and they're becoming resistant, it seems to be evidence perhaps that glyphosate is impacting glycine. And, you know, the, the sort of the scientific, I guess, rhetoric, which says that this is impossible or said that it, it says that it doesn't happen, it would claim that this misfolding can't occur. But we've got other examples in nature where the misfolding does occur. So there's, there's examples in um, Guam. There's a, I forget what the food is, but there's a, a food that's sort of native to Guam. And they found that there's, there's a, a substance in, in this food, I forget what it's called, but it actually can misfold and um, displace serine. And so then this can lead, there's various like ALS is a condition that's been highly linked to that. So we've actually got explanations of, of how this occurs in nature We've got evidence of bacteria evolving to actually overcome the impact of, of this glycine mimicking molecule glyphosate. And yet potentially science, which is informed by money is saying, no, 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 this couldn't possibly happen. So like you said, it's not definitive. You know, we don't have irrefutable evidence and scientific literature on this, but it is something we need to consider. And there are scientists out there. I think Stephanie's, uh, Stephanie Seneff, I think, is, is one of the main people behind this who's saying, look, there are mechanisms where this could be occurring. And I don't know about you, but for me, even if there's a moderate possibility that this is occurring, given how important glycine is, given how important collagen is in the gut, that's probably not something I want to play with if, if I'm uncertain about it. You know? Exactly. I mean, it just, it just affects too many mechanisms. So if you mm. affect glutamine... Uh, synthetase you just you affect so many mechanisms if you affect glycine well glycine is actually required to mitigate excess amounts of homocysteine mm, yeah so then if you're getting high amounts of homocysteine like this is obviously leading to high amounts of inflammation as well so yeah it just it just affects too many mechanisms and like you know the, the big thing that i the big message that i would look, like to get across is like a lot of the things that we've broken down here do you really think with all this it really makes it worth it, mm. especially when there's better alternatives, okay? And a lot of those alternatives aren't going to create a lot of the reactions that we're talking about. And actually, a lot of these alternatives won't create those reactions at all. Yeah, yeah. So, that's, you know, that's the question you ask, isn't it? It's that, okay, we can't say for sure if you, if you as an individual, N of 1 is having a negative response to gluten, gladden, and such, we can't say that for certain. But we've got all these ways of explaining how it could be happening. We know that in a significant portion of people it's happening and there's actually no real benefit to eating it, to consuming it, except for the fact that it's convenient. And there's plenty of alternatives available today. There's plenty of alternatives that are easy to get, accessible, taste good. And so is that a chance you want to take when you don't know what impact it's having in your body? Yeah, the end of the day, like, you know, we just want to give people the information but, you know, giving people the information and just saying, well, these are all the different types of responses. Yeah. We just say, is it really worth the risk? Okay. Yeah. And once again, you could say that you don't have all these issues with the transglutamase 3 and transglutamase 6 and all these types of things. But once again, if you do have some issues with hyperpermeability, intestinal permeability already, 
at the very least, what it's going to do, it's going to stoke the fire. Yeah. Yep. It's just going to exacerbate it. Yeah. Okay. And in this instance, okay, if you're trying to repair that, it's a little bit like uh, trying to bail out a leaky boat. You're doing all these things mm. to try and repair it. And in the meantime, you're actually consuming something that is creating more of that reaction and just making it even harder for you to fully, fully fix it. Mm. So what's the action? So for me, what I do, and obviously we're not saying this, is what everyone should do, but what I do and what I often, um, I guess, advise my clients who, who, who are maybe at a point where they've done a bit of gut healing first. Normally, initially, I'd say, look, let's just avoid gluten completely. Let's do that while we, we do the bulk of the work that needs to be done. After that point, I say, look, I'm happy for you to consume some of these ancient grains. Um, I'm happy if you want to try like an organic, properly you know, fermented sourdough, not like a fake sourdough starter, but a proper sourdough. And then when consuming grains, I tell people to try to get that organic. I don't expect everyone to eat everything organic, but you know, especially when it's coming to these grains, that's where I want to do organic. Any kind of loaf of bread I'm going to consume, I'm going to get that organic. And then typically I'm going to adhere to the um, like the dirty dozen sort of list of foods that are, you know, have the most sort of abundant pesticides on them. So that would be sort of my, the way I would deal with it. Personally, I'd say maybe once or twice a year, I'll have kind of like normal gluten, if that, like on birthday or Christmas or something like that, I occasionally might. Um, but I also don't have any significant gut issues myself. So that's what I generally recommend. And, and one other thing I, I would mention is that for all intents and purposes, I like people to imagine that they're celiac, right? So it's not, it's, it's, uh, it's not good enough to say, uh, I avoid gluten, but you know, I go out once a week and then I have it. Well, if it is having one of these responses we've talked about, that exposure once a week, that's more than enough to keep stoking the flame, like you said. So I would say, look, pretend, think about it as if you are celiac, but then if you do have an exposure, move on. You don't need to get caught up thinking about it and stressing about it and thinking, oh man, what have I just done to myself? We actually know there were studies done on this in people who are gluten sensitive, not celiac, but sensitive. And they ate gluten. Half of them knew that they ate gluten. Now the half didn't know that they ate gluten. And the half that knew that they ate it had significantly worse symptoms. So, you know, there, there is a huge placebo effect in, in this, or, or not even just placebo, but sort of, I guess, psychosomatic impact here where, Look, if it's happened, it's happened. We don't need to, you know, beat ourselves up about it, but we also do want to do our best to not put ourselves into those situations that, that could be harmful for us. So that's what I would recommend. Is there anything you would add to that? I mean, look, look I would do, I'd put similar things in place. I mean, look, I'd also say to people is like, maybe assess it. Like, even if you've got things like lying around, like even like blood markers, like maybe look to see what type of reactions that you've been having. Like, let's say if you've been eating, consuming gluten, is there a raise in things like your globulin? Okay. Mm. So, you know, is there a raise here? That means you've got high immunoglobin activity. Once again, IgG, IgA responses are going to be elevated. Is there a raise in even things like MEBs, the combined total of your monocytes, your eosinophils, and your basophils? That means there's like hyperpermeability taking place. Mm. Now, especially if the eosinophils and the basophils are elevated, this basically means that you've got histamine reactions taking place. So there's more of this antigen antibody response taking place. Now, also, do you have issues around things like, like thyroid issues, like Hashimoto's, these types of complications, because that probably means thyroid mimicry is taking place. Some of these things might give you a bit of a snapshot and a bit of a, you know, uh, a bit of an indication that you do actually have some of these problems taking place. And in this instance, I would say, we'll get rid of the common wheat, 
you want to start to fix the hyperpermeability. Not necessarily going to go, I've talked about some of the compounds that can be really good for that. Once you start to you know, fix this structure, minimize the things that are going to stoke the fire, exacerbate it. And then once, you're, once you've actually fixed it, you fix the structure, we'll start to introduce some of these ones that have lower gliding concentration mm. to some of the ones that we talked about at the start. And then this, we're not saying avoid it. We're just saying fix it, okay? Reduce the inflammatory load, fix the actual problem, and then start to consume ones that have a lower gliding concentration where you're not going to have a lot of this excessive response. Yeah, perfect. Awesome. Good stuff, Dave. Okay, everyone, your homework this week is to go find some organic Khorasan sourdough and give some of that a go with some nice olive oil and vinegar and toast. It'll be lovely. So um, we'll see see if you can find some, uh, you know, proper Durham wheat, semolina, okay? Let, let me let me know if you do because it can be pretty hard to track. I don't down. think I've ever had that day. So what people need to do is go find both Coruscant and your special semolina, and then compare, and then drop us a message and let me know which one's better. All right, I look forward to it. Great. Okay, thanks, Dave. All right, see ya. Thanks so much for listening, guys. As always, we hope this podcast was helpful. If you want to continue to connect with us, our social media profiles are linked in the show notes. And don't forget, the contents of this podcast are for educational purposes only. None of the information provided in a gut feeling is intended to treat, diagnose, or give medical advice. So please consult a healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle.